Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us in person here today. And those who are online, we see you too. (laughs) And today is our final installment in our riveting summer series on Old Testament characters. There have been a ton of highlights, including Abraham as an example of faith, Jacob and his battle or wrestle for God's blessing, Ruth and her noble character, and then last week we looked at the wisdom of Solomon. Today, we come to Esther, a woman of tremendous courage. Her story is the stuff of Oscar-winning motion pictures. It reads like a New York Times best-selling novel, and it pops off the screen like a blockbuster Netflix miniseries. It's full of political and racial conflicts, crazy power plays, romance and deception, the drama, intrigue, and irony in the book of Esther is absolutely delicious. The scene's set in 5th century B.C., chronologically roughly halfway between the times of David and Jesus. Many of the Jews, God's people, find themselves still in exile, originally taken captive over a hundred years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king. Those who chose to stay are now under King Xerxes, head of one of the most powerful regimes in history, the great Persian Empire. King Xerxes sets up an administrative headquarters in modern-day Iran, in a place called Susa, today about 700 kilometers southwest of Tehran. While Esther and her family enjoy some freedoms here, as Jews in Persia, there's still much religious and ethnic tension with which they must contend. This all forms the backdrop for the Bible's magnificent book of Esther. Let's pray together as we trust the Lord to speak to us today from his word. God, we thank you for this incredible story. We thank you for keeping the book of Esther in the canon of scripture. God, we ask today that you would come now and speak to us. Lord, would you move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit? God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that's apply the truth of your timeless word to each person here today. Would you challenge us? God, would you comfort us? Spirit of God, where our hearts are open to hear from you, we invite you to come and speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. To showcase his vast wealth and to show off the vast splendor and glory of his majesty, King Xerxes throws a six-month-long festival that culminates in a week-long banquet featuring, among other things, couches made of pure gold, rather uncomfortable, I imagine, and an open bar. In high spirits from the wine, the party climaxes when the king summons Queen Vashti to display her beauty to all the people. But she refuses to make an appearance. Furious, King Xerxes makes a decree that Vashti is never again to enter his presence. Humiliated, the king issues the following edict. All the women throughout his vast realm will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Now, I find it amusing how for the rest of the narrative, it's the women who are calling all the shots. 
a search for a new queen ensues. Bring all the beautiful girls in the kingdom to Susa, the king orders. And this is how we first meet Esther. It's in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel at Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Esther, she's an orphaned daughter of Jewish refugees, being raised by her cousin Mordecai, who'd graciously taken her in, likely from birth. Discovered for her beauty, Esther is whisked away to the palace where she undergoes 12 months of further beauty treatments. While at the spa, it says Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and especially King Xerxes, who soon sets a royal crown on her head and makes her queen instead of Vashti. Meanwhile, cousin Mordecai catches wind of a murder plot against the king. He reports it to the recently clowned King Esther, who informs the king, her new husband, credits Mordecai with the crime-stopping tip, and the assassination attempt is foiled. As penalty, the two conspiracists are hanged on the gallows, and all the events are tidily recorded in the empire's history books. Five years now pass between chapters two and three. Next, King Xerxes promotes a man called Haman to position as his chief minister and commands everyone in the nation to bow down and pay homage to him. Chapter 3, verse 3. But Mordecai would not kneel or honor Haman. The text is fuzzy as to why he refuses. Perhaps it's because Mordecai is a monotheist. He's a worshiper of the one true God, of the Hebrew God. Enraged, Haman learns Mordecai is a Jew, and he looks for a way to use his newfound power to annihilate all the Jews in the kingdom. Just a quick aside here. Haman offers us a telling commentary of how often in human history the hatred of one darkly and quickly and tragically turns into hatred for an entire race of people. Haman then casts the pure, that is the lot, to determine a date on which to destroy all the Jews. Then Haman pitches his plan to the king, who signs off on the attacks, puts a bounty on the Jews, writes it into Persian law, and even presents his precious signet ring to Haman to seal the deal. 
And chapter 3 ends with this crazy scene. It says the king and Haman sat down to celebrate over drinks, but the city of Susa is bewildered. Angry and terrified, when he learns of the king's recent order, Mordecai tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He wails loudly and bitterly throughout the city, as do Jews throughout the provinces. This is when Mordecai calls on Esther for help. But Esther is trapped. She knows if she speaks to the king without being summoned, she's dead. Literally, she will be put to death. And she informs cousin Mordecai, and they engage in this now famous interchange in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Mordecai says, For Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. After three days of fasting and preparation... Esther dons her royal robes and approaches the king at great risk. So courageous, it's clear that she's more concerned about the safety of her own people than she is about saving her own skin. And rather miraculously, Esther is received well, despite not having been summoned. The king even offers her half of his kingdom. But that is not what Esther's after. Her diplomacy is subtle and brilliant. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet she's prepared, and later, over drinks, the king asks, what is your request? Esther's response? Come to dinner again tomorrow. Then I will answer the king's question. Is Esther purposely holding the king in suspense to build his curiosity so that when she finally reveals her request, he'll be a lot more anxious to fulfill it? Savvy. In high spirits, Haman heads home after dinner and he brags to his family about how he's the only person invited in the king's palace to dinner two nights in a row. Haman's self-satisfaction is short-lived, however, because the guy who refused to bow down to him, that Jew Mordecai, whom he's just bumped into on Lonsdale on the way home from dinner, is still alive. And his wife suggests... Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. You can imagine my worry when I walked the church alley this week, saw this, and thought, who is plotting my doom? (laughs) Whoever you are, it's not going to work out well for you. (laughs) Suffering insomnia later that evening, the king to help him fall asleep, calls for the history books and stories read of Mordecai heroically thwarting the assassination attempt on him five years earlier, prompting the king to ask, has Mordecai been duly rewarded for his valor? Just then, Haman shows up. It's early in the morning, and he's hoping to ask for the king's permission to hang Mordecai. Oblivious to why he's there, the king immediately asks Haman 
What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And thinking the king wants to celebrate him, in a bizarre plot twist, Haman describes an elaborate procession through the city in his honor, to which the king commands at once, do all of this for Mordecai the Jew. What? (laughs) Having no choice, Haman obliges the king and parades Mordecai, his arch enemy, through the streets of Susa. Afterward, Haman heads home grief-stricken, and while he's unloading on his relatives, Haman is whisked away for the second banquet that Esther has prepared. Oh yeah, we nearly forgot about that, didn't we? At dinner, the king again asks Esther, what is your request? And for the first time, Queen Esther reveals her Jewish identity. If I have found favor with you, O king, Grant me my life and spare my people, for we have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. King Xerxes asks, where is the man who dares to do such a thing? And Esther points, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Infuriated, the king leaves the room while Haman, petrified, begs Esther for his life, allegedly assaulting the queen in the process. And seeing this pushes King Xerxes to the brink. Informed of the gallows Haman has secretly built upon which he intends to hang Mordecai, the king orders, hang Haman on those same gallows. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Justice and incredible irony. Soon after, Esther informs the king that she and Mordecai are related. Mordecai is given the estate of Haman as his reward for good service. Then Esther pleads with King Xerxes to make a decree to permanently protect her people, the Jews. And the king puts it into Persian law. And there is great rejoicing amongst the Jews throughout the land. Seems Haman's men, though, are still committed For on the day on which the lot had previously fallen, his men still carry out attacks throughout the kingdom on the Jews. But the Jews are battle-ready, and they triumph against their enemies. With the tables now fully turned, the Jews celebrate, instituting a national holiday still practiced today. It's the Feast of Purim to commemorate how the lot cast by Haman eventually fell back on him, and the Jews were saved. Modern-day Purim festivities feature yummy triangular pastries called Haman's Ears, plays put on by children, hissing at the mention of the name Haman, various and illustrious drinking games, and all sorts of merrymaking verging on frivolity. There is apparently a saying, Jewish saying, on Purim, anything goes. Well, as you can imagine, thanks for listening to the story, It's time now to land the plane on a few application points. What about the grandeur of God's character and his ways so wonderfully displayed in this story might we, might you, need a fresh reminder of today? And when we think of such a time as this, the life situation that you find yourself in today, what's there to learn from Esther, this incredible woman of courage. Well, I'd like to offer today four application points. The first is this. 
It's on power. God turns the power structures of this world upside down. Words related to the Hebrew root meaning to rule appear no less than 250 times in the 167 verses in the book of Esther. Nevertheless, those who grasp for power in the story prove to be astonishingly impotent. There's a Sattler legend, not sure how true it is, of how one time many years ago, my wife and kids were caught in a windstorm in a small boat on a Soyuz lake. And I was seen on shore flexing my muscles and gazing at my reflection in a window while they were paddling furiously to avoid being blown into the United States. And the power of my muscles was no help to them. I was oblivious to what was going on. When the king tries to show off, the queen refuses to cooperate. When Haman attempts to abuse power to fulfill his own agenda, the joke's on him. Several edicts of this most powerful king are quickly overruled. Strangely, Haman and Xerxes, both obsessed with power, seem to have little of it and appear to be controlled by the people all around them. When it comes to our relationship with power, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10 offers a very different picture. It says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Man, there is still so much I have to learn in this area about dying to self. Each time I try and take hard control of a situation in my home, in my job, on the soccer field, it rarely ends well. When I become obsessed with becoming a person of influence in places God has not ordained for me, when I try and manipulate people and circumstances for personal agenda, my plans never work. And I usually alienate or worse, seriously hurt those around me in the process. The Christian story messes with our world's power structures. Even when we're persecuted or struck down, powering up is never the solution. Our lives are meant for God's glory. It is God who promotes people and not us. When we try and make a name for ourselves and not for God, we are sorely mistaken. Yet, when we humble ourselves, we release power and rely fully on the power of Jesus in us, that's when we're most powerful. And God is most glorified through us. Second, on hope. God is in the business of reversing situations. Oh, how the tables turn in the book of Esther. 
It's the classic story that we all love of hope seemingly lost, then hope dawning on the horizon, and then through a sequence of supernatural events, hope fully realized. Esther captures the heart of the Christian story, and it ultimately points us to the living hope provided in the incarnation and resurrection of God the Son, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Central to Christianity is the marvelous truth that God loves to redeem our life experiences. God loves to transform situations. And God loves to offer hope when there is none, even in the face of of death itself. And so I ask, what in your life feels hopeless today? A broken relationship? A financial situation? A health problem? A secret you're carrying that if someone were to uncover, you'd be in big trouble? Whatever your circumstance, I encourage you to trust God today, even, even for the miraculous. God loves to reverse our hopeless situations. Third application point is on courage. I want to say this morning that obeying God is well worth the risk. In the ancient world, there was a policy designed to enhance a king's power and to guard against assassination attempts. Approaching a regent without a summons was punishable by death. Esther knows she cannot approach the king without an invitation. And she's holding on to a big secret. She's a Jew far away from home, and the king's just sanctioned a genocide against her people. To go to the king now was to risk certain death. Reminds me of that great scene towards the end of Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, when facing impossible odds of fighting all the armies of Mordor, Gimli Tolkien's pudgy dwarf pipes up, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? (laughs) Now, when it comes to God's calling in my life, I haven't always obeyed. Just over a quarter century ago, I received a thin but clear message from the Lord. Go to North Shore Alliance Church. Nearly everything inside of me said, no way. Too risky. I was afraid. We were happy at Surrey Alliance. The Lord was using us there mightily. And even with our young and growing family, we could afford to live there. But I sensed God was calling us here for such a time as this. So, We took the risk, we jumped in, and what a ride this has been. Front row seats to some incredible works of God in us, through us, all around us. Sure, 
At times it's been very difficult. But I would not trade these years for anything. Courage. Perhaps like Esther, you find yourself displaced, a foreigner in a strange and difficult land, or you're in a relationship, a family situation, or a workplace where people are at odds with your faith. How is God calling you to live faithfully within the situation you find yourself in today? Is there something God is asking you to say that might make you unpopular? Is there a thing that God wants you to do? Is there a precious possession that God's nudging you to give away? Is there a place that God is calling you to go? Friends, if God has put something on your heart, I encourage you to step in, to step up, and to do it. It'll be well worth the risk. Fourth and finally, on God's sovereignty. God is always working out his purposes in his time and his way. It's been the source of much debate for centuries, causing some to throw it out entirely. God is not mentioned a single time in the book of Esther. Yet, it's still part of our Bible. It's read religiously by Jews every year at the Feast of Purim because it's part of the family history book of God's people. For our understanding of God's sovereignty grows out of our real-life experiences. Much of life on our planet is lived with no mention of God when assuredly still God is there. Like one commentator says, before wicked Haman is even introduced, God has already installed his means of deliverance. A Jewish Queen Esther in a foreign court and Mordecai the Jew with favor in the eyes of a foreign king. And this is just what God does time after time after time. There are different ways to view the happenings in our world. It's all random, one might say. What we do doesn't really matter. I think Freddie Mercury wrote a song about that. We have no impact on the goings-on in the universe, and so eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you like. Or it's all fate, and smart people try and make something of themselves, like Haman, by working the religious, political, social, and economic systems of our world for personal gain. But the Christian story features a loving sovereign, behind it all, working out his eternal purposes. This God-King governs the universe from an entirely different perspective than we humans can understand. And that is such a good thing. It's a relief. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Belief in God's sovereignty means putting our faith in God's good character and God's divine perspective high above it all. Truthfully, though, sometimes it feels like our world and my life is in pieces. And I wonder, is God even there? Often it seems like he's distant, absent, perhaps too busy to care. But 
We can take comfort in this truth, core to Christianity, that even when our life or our world feels like it's spinning out of control, our God is still in charge of all the affairs of the universe. People of North Shore Alliance Church, when God is least visible, when we are tempted to think God has forgotten us, we can be sure God is still good and God is still working in his time and in his way. And graciously, like Esther, God even includes us in his work. God invites us to be part of something way bigger than ourselves. It's so awesome. And what a joy it is to witness the sovereignty of God mysteriously worked out in our world when we courageously respond and step into his call and obey.